Hello again, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to uh, What's Important Now. I want to start by introducing today's topic by reading a message. And this message came from the chief of the U.S. Border Patrol, and it was just June 17th of this year. And it is the regarding the death of Border Patrol agent Terry J. Agbenag. And it says, Border Patrol family, Grand Forks Sector Chief Patrol Agent Anthony Scott Good and I regret to inform you of the non-line of duty death of Border Patrol Agent Terry J. Agbenag on June 15th, 2021. BPA Agbenag, 32, was assigned to the Botano Station in the Grand Forks Sector. He entered on duty with the U.S. Border Patrol June 26th of 2008 as a member of Academy Class 787. Survived by his wife, Lauren, daughter, Ember, mother, Beth, and father, Border Patrol Agent, Terry F. Agbenag, Jr. On behalf of the entire Border Patrol family, I extend my deepest condolences to BP Agbenag's family, friends, and colleagues during this difficult time. I ask that you keep them in your thoughts and prayers. Sadly, preliminary information indicates that BP Agbenag died by suicide. While any loss of life is painful, suicide is exceptionally heartbreaking because it's preventable. In memory of BP Agbenag and the countless members of our extended law enforcement family we've lost to suicide, I ask each and every one of you to continue to look, for, look out for each other. <clears throat> we need to be just as alert and ready to help a colleague in need while on the station or even off duty as we are in a tactical situation in the field. We're all going through some difficult times and everyone needs a helping hand or encouraging voice now and again. As we cope with this loss, or if you're struggling with issues yourself, please remember that help is always there for you. Your sector's chaplain, peer support members, are great resources, and the Employee Assistance Program, also known as EAP, is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline for immediate help. If you aren't comfortable using any of those resources, please consider your local clergy. You can also contact me through the CBP Watch at any time. Signed, Rodney Scott, then Chief, U.S. Border Patrol. Now I'll read that to you because each and every time we lose a brother or sister, we get a message like this from leadership. And it's heartfelt, and we appreciate it. But I'll tell you, this year, we've had nine of those messages because of suicide. And so I want to take a deep dive into this topic of suicide and explore what it is, its impact on us, and in the end, what we can do about it. Because something's not working. When somebody commits suicide, it leaves a wake of destruction. The family and the loved ones are left thrashing in the wake trying to pick up the pieces and, and searching for answers and more times than not there just there just aren't any. And there's often a sense of guilt on the part of those that are left behind wondering could we have seen something? Could we have done something more? Could we have stopped it somehow? And it leads to the inevitable question how do we prevent it? So I want to explore this painful enemy that we call suicide by getting to know Terry and his family. 
And I can think of no better way to do that than to introduce you to my guest. And I'll tell you right now, one of the bravest, most courageous individuals you'll ever have the chance to hear from. Terry F. Agbanad, father of Border Patrol agent Terry Agbanad. Terry, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So I want to tell everybody a little bit about you, if you'll indulge me in this, because I know you don't like talking about yourself. Most Border Patrol agents don't. But it bears knowing that you've been a part of this Green family for nearly 30 years. Born and raised in San Diego, and you have been assigned in San Diego sector for 29 going on 30 years. You were class 259. You've been a firearms instructor in Charleston and Glencoe. Matter of fact, you were here as a tactics instructor in Artesia right when I first got here. Mm -hmm. And coincidentally, your son was also a tactics instructor here at the same time. Yes, he was. I actually I actually came out to uh, to be with him, to instruct with him. So I came a couple couple months after he did. I had to pull a couple strings to actually. Get <laughs> well, I can't imagine what an amazing opportunity that must have been. And, and I, you know, as a father and a grandfather myself, I, you know, the sense of pride just had to be overwhelming. Uh, you know, and to work alongside your son and and uh, and to share in that moment with him. I'd like to start off first to hear from you in your own words. Tell us about Terry. Help us get to know him. Well. You know, Terry, he was my oldest son. Uh, my wife and I, uh, we met in high school. I think I was 15, she was 16. I guess she was into younger guys or something. I don't know exactly, but uh, uh, when we were 21, when I was 21, we had Terry and uh, fantastic kid right off the bat. And uh, I've ha I have uh, three other children. Uh, Terry and Megan, my daughter, she's 30. Uh, Emily, my other daughter, who's 23. And then my youngest boy is uh, Zach. And uh, Terry was always the, uh, he was a great kid all the way growing up. You know, uh, he didn't uh, do well in school. He didn't like school, but he, he had a big heart, that kid. Uh, very, uh, very good at, uh, uh, you know, listening he was the one that i could kind of give him the look you know and he'd straighten up uh and we still tell this story uh my when my my when terry and megan were younger um i would get them out in the yard working and stuff and terry would go right to it and he would finish the job and my daughter would wander around and and talk about how am i done yet am i done yet and she usually would end up having to clean the garage and clean part of the house and i just kind of extended the work for her until she kind of got it. Terry picked it up right off the bat and he was always working hard, really working hard. And uh, we kind of laugh at that. He had a great work ethic. I'm told that uh, uh, when he went on detail to Laredo, I believe it was Laredo, uh, he was in the, the, um, uh, the processing center there. And uh, this kid loved processing, unlike his his old man <laughs> like most of us i think <laughs> and uh, he was on the red bar team for a number of years out in campo and he really excelled at that and uh uh 
He had a real great work ethic, and I've talked to some of the guys that have uh, worked with him, you know, on different spots, and they really commented about how how uh, how uh, his work ethic and his, his strength and the and processing and stuff uh, really shown through, you know. Uh, so he he went to the academy at 19, turned 20 at the academy. I kind of gave him the uh, the old ultimatum, you know, you you got to figure out something, kid, you know, and. Uh, so he went to the academy, and uh, when he got out, he lived with us at home for quite a while, for not quite a while, for a little bit. I let him move back into his, his own room, his old room. I only charged him $200 a month, <laughs> which was $10 <laughs> per year, it was, right? His mom wasn't too happy about that. She didn't think that uh, he, he needed to pay for his, uh, his own. But, you know, keeping him uh, responsible for himself, which he very, he very much was. And uh, and over the years, we had taken him to him, all of our children. Uh, we attended a little church, the 10th Street Church of Christ in Imperial Beach. Very small church, no real uh, uh, youth group. Actually, it was my family was the youth group. And uh, so we took him out to another place out in uh, um, out in El, Cent uh, El Central, El Cajon, Bostonia mm -hmm. Church of Christ. Huge youth group. They had a huge uh, summer camp that Terry started attending, and that's where he met his wife, Lauren, as, oh, as a kid, yeah. <laughs> so he met her there, solid girl, solid family, and uh, they got married. Uh, my wife and I were sitting in church uh, one Sunday, a different church. Uh, we, we attended a different church uh, when he got old enough to go on his own. And uh, so he texts me, he texts me, and right in the middle of church and I look down and it says, hey, uh, getting married today, I'll, I'll call you with the details. <laughs> I, okay. I, I, I nudged my wife and I said, hey, your son's getting married today. And she says, what? And so that they got married that afternoon. Uh, we went, went down to a little place and got married and uh, they got married. And then shortly after that, she went with him to Tucson. That was his first detail. They quickly detailed him to Tucson and she went with him. And uh, that kind of started his uh, different things. And uh, so he was at Campo for a number of years. And uh, then we then he went to Artesia as a tactics instructor. And I was teaching uh, uh, firearms at the range uh, in San Diego sector. I was on a two year detail coming close to the end of that. And when I found when he told me he went out there, I went into the boss over there and I said, hey, uh, I'd like to I'm leaving this this detail early, I'd like to go out there and teach with my son. And uh, I actually had to go to my station and talk to my PAIC about that. And they were completely uh, for it, you know, behind the 100%. Yeah. What an opportunity, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I showed up kind of as the trainee and he had already been there for a couple months and he was showing me around and which was fantastic because uh, had he not been there, it'd have been kind of like, you know, you got to hit hit the ground running pretty much you know there's a lot of stuff going on different classes and stuff in the tactics department and uh, he was old hat at that being two 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 months in and uh, so I got to kind of I worked with him very closely for the first few weeks which was fantastic and we shared an office you know I mean it was it was just the best of times really you know over there and uh, uh, so we worked there and then, of course, he was putting in for other 
other jobs, and he picked up a job over in uh, in rugby, North Dakota, I believe, uh, as a resident agent of of that area. Uh, Botno, I think, is his was yep. his kind of uh, his main station. Yep. Main station, yes. And uh, so he moved off to uh, to rugby, North Dakota, and uh, left me at the academy for a, a few weeks. And then COVID hit, everything closed down. I went back to to regular uh, work. And uh, then they called me back shortly thereafter. And I went back for a little bit. And uh, and then I got to go out there and see Terry on a few occasions and meet, you know, uh, not work with him, but, you know, see the area and stuff is beautiful up there during certain times. Yep. Other times it's very, very, very cold. And... Uh, uh, and then he, he got detailed a couple of times, I think down to Laredo. And then the last one was over in Yuma. So, uh, that was kind of his, uh, his border patrol, uh, uh, path that he was on. And of course he had a daughter, Amber. Yes. Yep. Uh, I completely forgot her, uh, oh, wait. Amber, uh, she's seven years old now. And, uh, she was my first granddaughter first grandchild. I've got two others, a bo two boys, uh, Cole and Paxton, four and two. And uh, man, I tell you what, uh, they are the light of my life, man. I really do enjoy this season, the grandpa season, you know, right there with you. everything about it, you know, just, uh, I get to sugar them up and then send them home, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, Terry, everything that you've described is a great life, a great upbringing, a great career, a great family, uh, somebody that, that dedicated his life to the service of his country. And by all accounts, people that uh, worked with him and knew him, just an outstanding person to have on your team and standing by your side. When did things start to happen differently? Do you know? Well, what started to happen for him that led him down this dark path? Well, you know, um, the only thing that I can say uh, where I actually saw something uh, uh, that was off, right, uh, was we were at the academy and uh, we were doing night scenarios and uh, um, we were doing interdictions, night interdictions, and we used the paint cartridges, mm. uh, or, or actually during that, those scenarios, we used blanks, okay? Those are done with blanks. So we were using blanks, and there's there was a scenario where uh, a group of instructors would come down a, a trail, and then the, the trainees would interdict them, and, you know, we'd see what happens, right? And... Uh, so Terry was one of the role players and he was he was with maybe five, six, seven other instructors. And uh, he had grabbed a, a box of rounds, a box of blanks from the Connex box that we use and carried them out. And the, the way that we did it at that time was it's dark. We don't want the trainees to see you. So get out there on the trail and load up in the dark, load up and then we'll start the scenario. And uh, that happened. It turned into a shoot scenario, and one of the trainees, instead of blanks, got a paint round to the face, and it was and it embedded in his face, right? And uh, 
I was the OIC for the for the for the scenario, scenario. Mm -hmm. so uh, you know I I okay I don't even know it's not blanks because it's dark and everything right so I, I pull the trainees and I'm going over okay well, how did you do and then one of the trainees says hey I got something here on my face so I look and I'm like whoa hold on stop right now everybody stop let me look at that okay sit down right here and then I immediately went over there and told those guys hey download everything turn the lights on and get everything clean and clear and let's go through all of your ammunition sure. and see what's going on here we're shutting it down at this point and then I went and talked to uh, the uh, the supervisor that was running the training for that night and uh, you know after that uh, I saw a little bit of a, a difference in Terry and um, uh, he uh, uh, he expressed to me he says I can't believe that I'm that guy that brings the paint round to a blanks scenario. And I told him, I said, man, look, that was not your fault. That yeah. was not, that, that was, that was uh, uh, something that perhaps was waiting to happen. Because if you open up the Conics box at the time, there was mixed paint rounds and sure. blank rounds in there. You just happened to grab the wrong box and it was an accident. You didn't do anything on purpose or anything like that, you know, and, but it really, really, he took it really, really hard to himself. And, uh, I had to have several conversations with him to try to lift. I saw him drop, you know, but not, and he never expressed to me any thoughts of suicide or anything like that. But that's the only, the only time that I saw him kind of start ruminating on this. And I think it kind of stayed with him for a while, you know? More than probably you would have thought it would have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I had talked to him and, he, you know, eventually I guess like, yeah, yeah, it's all, it's all right. It's all right. So, I mean, he never, he never brought it up to me again, like continually brought it up to me over and over and over again, a couple times. Right. And then I thought, okay, it's, it, but that was, that's the only thing that I can say because prior to that, you know, we were out there in Artesia, we were doing great. I mean, we lived five minutes from each other. The family was doing great. As far as I knew, everything was going great, man. And then, uh, and then he moved to North Dakota and they were up there by themselves. And it, I, I think it gets a little bit uh, isolated out there, you know, yeah. uh, no family. Where here in San Diego, he has a whole lot of family, you know, Network. Yeah. unlimited uh, huh. anyone will babysit at a drop of the hat, you know, I mean, unlimited sure. uh, support. And out there, it was a little sparse, you know, I mean, uh, uh, and he's a resident agent, so there's not a lot of people around from his work. He's working on his own quite often, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, and he never, uh, he never uh, expressed to me like, hey, dad, you know what, I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that. You know, I, there was never except for that one thing. And that was, you know, he was out there in our uh, in uh, North Dakota for almost a year, you know, and he, he never reached out. And I went up there on a few occasions and we would sit around hanging out, having some dinner and stuff. And he never pulled me aside or he never looked sad or anything like that. You know, there was no real. Uh, indicators you know that we talk about so even even looking back with the benefit of 2020 hindsight you still really can't point to anything that would have given you a, an idea that something was wrong no no i know uh he was drinking a lot 
there was a couple of occasions that uh, I received a phone call and I had to <laughs> talk to him about it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my daughter-in-law called me, hey, uh, you know, Terry's, he's out of control, kind of, not to the point where he was doing anything that, you know, like beating her up or anything like that, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, uh, just verbally and stuff, he was getting kind of crazy, and I said, well, put him on the phone, and uh, she says, he just took off for a walk, he mm-hmm. just walked out, I said, well, when he gets back, tell him to give me a call, you know, and uh so the next day, of course, he didn't call me. The next day I called him and we had a little talk. You know, I was like, dude, you know, what's up, man? You know, and I know I'm sorry, you know, uh, you know, and he, he did that. You know, he told me, expressed that he was sorry. And you know what? I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I quit drinking in 99. Uh, but prior to that, man, I mean, back in the day, we used to do a lot of drinking, you know, uh, amongst ourselves, we have a lot. Pretty common in the profession, and yeah. certainly in the border patrol. And and this this is when during the time when he was up in Botano. Yes. Right. And so maybe that was because uh, you mentioned that in here that uh, that that alcohol now for you is a red flag because that's something that you identified as. Man, I wish maybe I would have paid a little bit more attention to that because you started seeing that. Yes. And I did have uh, uh, a talk with him about the out of control stuff. But I'll tell you, you know, I'd go to his house or I'd ha- I'd go up to North Dakota and uh, he would drink, you know, and uh, uh, but, you know, he's he's a 32 year old man, you know, and he doesn't need his dad on him all the time. He never in while I was there and in my presence, never out of control, always just real social drinking and hanging out, you know, that's uh, uh, so I. I I didn't see it as a, a, a huge red flag, but I did on the times, you know, when she called, when uh, Lauren called me and I, I addressed it with him and he was like, yeah, you know, but, but like I said, I've been there, you know, I, I've gotten to where I'm saying things that I regret and I had to apologize the next day, you know? Sure. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, the case when I quit drinking and Terry was a, a factor in that I was in Glencoe teaching firearms got in, went over to a, another firearm instructor's uh, house for a party, and they had a bottle of tequila there, which they handed me, and unfortunately, they had no idea what they were doing at that time, <laughs> and uh, I got into a fight with another instructor, I passed out in the backyard, they had to carry me home, and my wife was also drinking, so a driver's instructor drove us home, uh, my four kids and my wife and I, I'm passed out in the, in the van, drove us home and I wake up in the morning around the toilet where, you know, I'm, that's, that had happened before. So I, I wake up in the morning and I'm sitting there around the toilet, you know, laying down there on the floor and Terry's standing over me and he's about 10 at the time. And he says, wow, dad, you were, you were drunk last night. And, uh, I started thinking, I'm like, man, what am I doing, man? What am I doing? You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be asking this kid not to do this, that type of stuff. And here I am acting like a fool, you know, in front of my whole family and my kids and stuff, you know? And I quit drinking. I just cold turkey, that was it. For about 15, 17 years. I uh, you know, maybe a beer now and again, but that was it. And uh 
thank God because I did go through some some very low times uh, and uh, I'm glad that I was not drinking at that time. Uh, well, brother, let me say it's, uh, you know, certainly those are some hard life lessons learned that many of us go through. And and I guarantee you, anybody listening, there's probably a lot of folks that can uh, that that resonates with that they uh, they can relate to that a lot. And and it sounds like you took those lessons and, and, and made the right choices. And uh, and, you know, as a result of your your son, like I said, came out to be, you know, an agent, a father, you know, a husband uh devout to his uh, his religion and yours and uh and by all accounts you know everything was was great uh and, and i guess the point i want to make there is we 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 try and look for these signs or these things he should have told us or warned us and and that guilt sets in but is it fair to say somebody in your uh, with your experience in this it's not always there for us to see. Sometimes it's not the the family and friends' fault that this happens. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, go ahead. Yeah, it's uh, you know, in my presence, there were there were no uh, no you know the classic uh, saying things or talking about uh, here you can have this or you can you know those things that we look for. Uh, I mean, that's not to say that we shouldn't be on guard and be looking right. and trying to help and recognize signs and symptoms when they exist, but we also have to accept the fact that they're not always there. Yes. Yeah. Right? So let's go to, and if you feel comfortable, Terry, talking about it, but let's go to when it happened and how you found out about it and, and take us through that. I know it's a very difficult, raw moment for you and the courage you're, you're exhibiting to be able to do this. I don't know that I could, but uh, but take us through it. Okay, uh, it was uh, the 15th of June, and uh, I went to bed that night like I normally do, nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, woke up a couple times at night, got up, used the restroom, come back to bed, kind of normal thing. No inkling that anything was going on. And that night on the 15th at about 11 o'clock, uh, Terry uh, ended his life, and uh, uh, I had no uh, weird feelings about that night. You know, like woke up at that eleven something, like what's going on? You know, any of those type of <laughs> paranormal type of uh, feelings or anything? Just a regular night, and uh, I know uh, from what I what I've heard, uh, he uh, was drinking very heavily that night. He was on detail to Yuma, and his uh, Lauren was there visiting uh, with Ember. They came from North Dakota to stay while he was there, while he was in Yuma. And uh, uh, it was uh, about three weeks into his four-week detail, and he Ember was in San Diego with family, and uh, Lauren and Terry were in Yuma, and they were in the I guess in the uh, the uh, hotel room, they were drinking very heavily, and I have heard that he was blackout drunk in the in a rage, and I guess they were saying things back and forth, very you know, uh, heart hurt, hurtful things, and you know that type of thing, and uh, as I understand it, Terry just out of the blue turned and dove into his tricky bag and came out 
with his service weapon and just ended his life. And, uh, you know, I, that night, like I said, there was no, uh, there was no indicators that anything was different. I woke up early that morning. I usually go to bed about 8.30 cause I'm old. And I, I get up about 4.30 uh, for a six o'clock start. And I remember getting up early and just, you know what, I'm gonna head in, I'll stop in Star at Starbucks and grab a drink. And uh, so I did that. I got to work early that morning and um, my buddies are sitting around. We're just hanging out, no supervisor yet. And then uh, the supervisor walked in and he kind of walked around the room and then he walked out, which I, I thought was kind of kind of weird, you know? So I turned to my buddy and I said, man, that's kind of weird, no? And he says, yeah, that was. So, you know, just in that moment, uh, my PAIC comes walking in from the other door, the other side of the room with, uh, with uh, uh, another guy. Uh, later on, I learned uh, he was a peer support uh, guy and uh, they walked into the room and I look and they're looking at me the supervisor walks in and then he kind of shoes everybody out of the room hey everybody come on outside I need to talk to you so they leave and they leave me there and those two guys walk up to me and uh, you know I looking back on it, I was kind of uh, I was kind of a little cocky because initially I thought it was OIG right mm -hmm. I was like, ah, internal affairs. And I'll tell you what, I have a clear conscience <laughs> as the day is long. So there was nothing I was afraid of. I was like, I even told him, I said, hey, are you here for me? What's going on, man? And uh, and then uh, my PIC says, yeah, man, we're here for you. And then he sat down and I was like, there's something different about this. You know, it's weird. And uh, so then he starts talking and I'm watching his face and I'm I'm like, uh, wait, I don't even, I don't want to hear this. There's something I don't want to hear, you know? And I told him, I said, stop, stop. Uh, I don't, I don't want to hear it. Stop. And then he stopped. And then the peer support guy says, continue on. He needs to hear this. And so then he, uh, expressed, he told me that, uh, Terry had taken his life the night that night. Uh, and man, I'll tell you what, uh, I've never, I've never been in a, a storm like that, you know, and kind of hit me. I, I, the, the, the analogy that I kind of use is a, is a tsunami, you know, it was just overwhelming. Uh, it, it hit me and I, I, I don't know, I threw some stuff around. I got up, knocked the chair over or something. And uh, all I remember is telling myself, you know, it's going to be all right. You're going to be all right. You're going to be all right over and over and over again, you know, and uh, uh, I ended up in a, kind of a corner of the room, uh, just holding, barely holding on, you know? And those two guys are standing right there with me, but they're kind of giving me a little space, you know? And uh, and then my my wife popped into my brain and I was like, man, I gotta get home. I gotta get home. And uh, so I think I, I turned and I looked at Brent there and I said, hey, uh, um, I got to get home. This isn't going to be good. And he says, we're not going to let you drive. I'm going to go get my ride and I'll be here and I'll take you home. I said, go get your ride. I'll be waiting for you outside. And so we walk, I walked outside and I was just sitting there kind of in, you know, just in this, I don't know what, I was kind of lost in the moment, you know, in the, in the, in the You're storm. In shock. Yeah. in shock. And, uh, don't remember what was going on around me. 
and I just kept thinking about my wife and and then Brett brought his, brought his ride up, I jumped into it. We took off, headed for the house and not, my house is about 12 minutes from Brown, from my station. And uh, we got about uh, halfway there and then he said something about, yeah, we have two chaplains at your house waiting for you, you know. The chaplains were supposed to contact me at the house, but I had left early that day. So they missed me. So they, he says, yeah, we have two chaplains at your house. And I was like, tell them to get out of there. Down the road. I do not want my wife seeing them at the house. I want I'm going to be the one that tells her this, you know, and uh, he says, oh, OK, so the other guy made the phone call and hey, clear out, clear out, you know. And then I attempted to call my my older daughter. She lives maybe five minutes from us because uh, I needed someone at the house, you know, when I got there and uh, she had put her phone on airplane mode, so she wasn't getting any calls. So I called my youngest sister uh, and she's nine years younger than me and she lives maybe <laughs> she's cl she's closer than my my daughter is. And she answered the phone. I said, hey, Cynthia, you think you can, uh, you know, uh, meet me at the house? She says, uh, yeah, what's going on? I said, ah, nothing, nothing. Just, uh, I just need to talk to you for a second. Can you just meet me? I didn't want her to, you know, I didn't want to traumatize her there and have her drive over. So I said, just meet me at the house, you know? She says, okay. I said, okay, can you hurry? Cause I really need you, you know? And uh, so then she's like, ah, okay. And so by the time we got there, she was already in the driveway with her husband, Juan. And, uh, so I went over to her and I, I told her. And, uh, so that it was, took a little bit before we could go into the house. And uh, so we went into the house and uh, I went into the bedroom. I told Juan and Cynthia, just stay out here. And my wife is very, she doesn't like people, you know, there. She wouldn't have liked anybody in the room. Matter of fact, she kicked me out uh, when I told her. And so I, went over and woke her up and then I, I told her and uh, man, it was just, uh, oh, that was a whole nother level, a whole nother yeah. level, you know? And uh, because when you have the person that you love asking you to make it so that it's not real, you know, what do you do with that? You know, cause I can fix a lot of things. I can't make things that are real, not real, you know? And uh, um, so, that kind of went and uh, she got dressed. I said, get dressed. We need to go up to Megan's and we need to, because Megan lives at an apartment complex uh, about five minutes from the house. And we own it. My sisters and I own it. My mom owned it and she passed it to us when she passed away. And so it's a family apartment complex. There's four apartments and my three kids live up there. My sister lives up there and my nephew lives up there, you know, and uh, so we went up there and then I had to tell everybody there, you know, which is it every time. It's just another it re it's a whole nother thing, you know, uh, it's a whole nother level, each one, you know. Uh, and uh, so I had to take on that role, you know, be strong for the family and. Uh, um, uh, kind of let everybody know what was going on. And uh, so that started about three weeks of just 
complete uh, nightmare, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so you, you were at work, and, and then you get this news that just, I, I'm not even trying to put it into words. I, I don't know, you know. And then you had to switch right into the, uh, the mode of you had to reopen that wound again and again to tell your family members. Yeah. And then be the strong one there for them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't even begin to imagine what something like that would be like. Um, and I, and as, as you told that story and you talked about it, you know, it's it, a couple of things strike me and, and I kind of want to talk about them with you. And number one is, you know, it does seem like alcohol was an issue. Yeah. And, and so many times that is the case. I mean, you, you, uh, it's, it's something that we all have to be very careful about, especially in our profession, especially some of the places we get sent very remote, like you said, away from your network, your support network. And, and uh, it's very easy to feel alone mm-hmm. and, and, and especially in this day and age doing this type of a job and alcohol can definitely exacerbate that. And it seems like that may have at least been at least in part a factor uh, for what happened, but then it's what you just went through. And so let's dissect that a little bit for, did we, did the Border Patrol, uh, did we do it right in how we notified you and took care of you and your family? If not, what do we need to do different? You know, I think uh, by the grace of God, it, it was exactly what I needed, exactly. And I think I miss the, the chaplains in the morning by the grace of God. You know, that's all I, that's the only thing that I could kind of say. Uh, you know, the way it happened, the way I was notified, uh, my PIC, I know uh, I've talked to him on a few occasions and uh, before that, you know, and he's fairly newer at the station, uh, but he's a solid guy, you know, mm-hmm. and I knew that when he told me that, that there was no, there was no question that it had happened. You know, I didn't go through any, oh, my God, are you sure or is this real? He's not bringing me that unless he's sure. I know that. Mm-hmm. And so that was solid. You know, that was solid. Uh, so I, I didn't go through a this can't be real. This isn't real. This isn't real type of thing, you know. And uh, um, so that whole the way it played out for me and maybe it wasn't the plan, but it was perfect. It, it worked out. So I think it's important for everybody that was involved in this scenario, from the chaplains to the peer support folks to even the the members of management and and indeed your your brothers and sisters that were there beside you, to hear uh, that at least they did what they could and it it had some kind of an impact. Yeah. And if there's less less to be learned, then of course we need to know that too. And so you said you you mentioned it started this uh, this three weeks of just unimaginable. You know where you i'm sure had to make arrangements to bury your son you know and 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 bring to a close you know his life and and the, all the things that come with that I, you know we haven't even talked about you know the uh the impact that it had on ember and his wife you know and what they still go through even today i'm sure absolutely absolutely uh yeah there was there was a whole you know a whole bunch of different things that needed to be addressed 
you know, uh, for instance, uh, identifying him, right? They called me and they said, hey, uh, if you send us a picture, we can identify him over the, you know, from that and we can sign the paper off. And I was like, no, I'm not going to send you a picture. I'm coming out to Yuma and I'm going to identify my son myself, you know? And uh, so I went to Mo Sasweta and I was like, you know, he's one of my best friends. And I was like, hey, man, can you give me a ride out? Will you, will you drive me out there to, uh, to Yuma? And he's like, absolutely. And I got uh, Terry's uh, father-in-law, Lauren's father, to go with us. So the, the three of us drove out there. And uh, um, you know, I went in and I, I identified him. You know, and uh, that was uh, that was, you know, it was crazy in the beginning, but. Uh, I found a, a sense of peace. If that sounds kind of weird, I don't know. But uh, uh, initially, I was just kind of over overwhelmed. But then they had actually uh, did what they do to make everything look great, you know. And he looked like he was sleeping, and it really kind of I got a like a sense of peace, like you know, seeing him there and knowing what was happening as opposed to in my mind because when i you know it, it runs around like crazy you know the monkey mind running around on you know what is where's he at or what you know what does he look like what it, the whole thing you know it was just kind of driving me nuts and to actually go there and see him there and he looked like he was sleeping man real peaceful and uh and i even uh, went out and got mo and and uh mel and said hey come on inside and Mo actually was there when he was born. He's been my buddy since high school. And uh, he was one of the, I don't know, I, a core group of friends, nine or 10 guys that uh, he was there. And I did the kind of the Hakuna Matata, hold Terry up to the window thing. And they're all, ah, and they're all making fun of him, saying inappropriate things, you know, <laughs> during that time. But he was there, you know, and uh, I thought it was, uh, you know, right on that he, you know, was there for me when I needed him, you know. Uh, so there, there was a lot of different things. And then dealing with the with the uh, the mortuaries and the transfer of him from here to there and just trying, you know, but I'll tell you what it, it did do. It, it kind of kept me busy and distracted for a lot of times and a, a lot of the time. And but I'll tell you, in those late hours, you know, on two, three o'clock in the morning, man, I'll tell you, those quiet, quiet hours, it's, uh, it still gets me, you still. know? Yeah, still. But not as often, not as often, you know? I mean, so. Uh, and what about, uh, what about Lauren and Ember? How are they doing? Lauren and Ember, they're doing, they're doing, I don't want to say they're doing all right. They are, uh, you know, they're uh, EAP has provided uh, counselors for them. Um, and uh, uh, Ember, uh, I was there when we took Ember to the park, when we notified her, told her about it. Oh, that was, that was heartbreaking. Uh, that was one of the hardest things I've ever done uh, through oh. the whole thing, 
you know. How old was she? Uh, she's seven. Seven. Seven years old, yeah, seven years old. And uh, so she, uh, she, you know, and, and then she moved from North Dakota with all of her friends and everything, and she comes out here because she had been going to school out there almost a year. And uh, so she's at a new school, a new place. So it's, uh, you know, taking an adjustment period, you know, there. And uh, she's going to counseling uh, and Lauren's going to counseling. Uh, I think all of us are still struggling in our own ways, you know. But I think that part of that, I think, is getting it out. You know, and I, I, I tell my wife this because she uh, she's going to be mad that I said this, but <laughs> she does not want to go to counseling because she does not want this to be real. She goes, I don't want to talk to anybody because I don't even want to know if this is real or not. And that's that's pretty now, you know. Uh, she she has gone a couple times and uh, um, to her counselor, and I've went with her one time, the last time. But uh, she see, sometimes she seen she finds creative ways of not going, you know. Yeah. And I tell her that, you know, go, and just you don't have to talk about Terry. Just talk about anything, but just talk, get it out, talk, 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 and eventually you'll find that, you know, if that makes any sense. I, yes. I, uh, so she is in the process and, you know, everybody, all of us have to walk our own path. You know, she and I, I try not to you need to go kind of thing. You know, it's uh, what would be good for you, <laughs> you know, uh, and then, uh, you know, my my daughter, who is 32, Megan, uh, she is uh, or she's 30. She is. Uh, over 26 and EAP, she couldn't get an EAP counselor. So she is going to her own counselor through her insurance that she has. Okay. And uh, but my two younger children are 23 and 22. So they are they're going. So and because she was 26, she doesn't fall under EAP because of being your your child. Right. Right. Okay. And so that's a cutoff date. That's important to know. That is that is. Uh, and there are a couple of. Uh, differences between different things that we can talk we'll we'll probably get to about uh, the different programs and stuff so so and and I wrote these down and I don't want you to kind of say but you you had three things that if you could talk to Terry now and you could tell him yep uh, I've been going to uh, the musters at my station and uh, because I think that we really need to talk about it you know it's been taboo and quiet for far too long uh, and so I, I went to the day shift, the uh, 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 day shift muster, and uh, then uh, then the swings and then the mids. And I kind of at the end I talk about you know if my son were here, uh, there are three things that I'd I'd tell him, you know, if you are suffering with these type of feelings like suicidal thoughts or depression or whatever it is, you're not alone. You're not alone. And, and we, we can look around us, you know, I mean, we've had nine suicides just this year, you know, yeah. so there are people who are suffering, horribly suffering quietly, right? Yeah. So my message to them and to everybody, if you are suffering with that, you're not alone. Pick up the phone and call somebody. 
call somebody, start talking, talk, talk, you know? And I, I told the guys at my station, I'm like, look, if you have no one else to talk to, I'm over at the maintenance shop, come by and talk to me. I, if you have my number, which a lot of them do have my number in their phones, call me. I'll, I have no problem talking to people, you know, talking to, you know, I might not be able to help you, but you aren't going to be alone. You will not be alone. And uh, so that would be the number one. Number two is if you are, um, if you're medicating this, these type of feelings with alcohol or whatever it is you're medicating it with, and you find yourself drinking, taking that first shot, okay? Use that shot as a red flag. And before you take that shot, make a phone call and call somebody and just tell them what you're feeling. You know, get it out, get it out. That's the, that's the, uh, one of the biggest things is getting it off your shoulders. You know, don't live with it in silence. You know, as it weighs down and weighs, get it out, get it out. Uh, and the third one that I would tell my son and anybody who's struggling with this is that, and this is learned, this is my experience is life's not better without you, you know? Uh, I know because I have been in, in that, you know, I had, I, I thought of suicide uh, one time, uh, 10 years, 10, 12 years ago, my wife and I were not getting along. She was addicted to painkillers and I was losing my, my sense of everything, you know, and, uh, it flashed through my mind. It did. And, uh, but it scared me. I didn't dwell on it and I didn't think of it more than once, but it scared me. And what I started doing is I went to Al-Anon. I started going to Al-Anon about 12 years back. And I was going to like three or four meetings a day, just from one to the next, to the next, to the next, looking for that, uh, that calm harbor in the storm, you know? And uh, uh, I found it in Al-Anon. I found serenity, you know, they talk about serenity and uh, a peace of mind. And I found it uh, through that. And that's not, I mean, uh, I am not uh, telling everybody that they need to go to Al-Anon by any means. I, I'm expressing what it is that helped me in that storm. That helped me, you know. And uh, But what I would tell Terry and everybody else is that life is not better without you. You know, and I, I thought, you know, that, that's kind of a thought that goes when you're at that lowest point, man, my family would be better off without me. And I, I thought that, you know, in that moment. Uh, it's not true. It's not true. So you, better with everything that you just uh, that you've just shared an incredible amount. There, there's a few things that just really stick with me. And I think it's something that uh, that especially you would like to, to, to bring forth. And, you know, number one, of course, is talk to somebody that can relate to what you're going through, what you're feeling. That makes sometimes all the difference in the world. And here's somebody in you that has walked through that dark path, that has has been through these unimaginable moments in life that no one should ever have to have to experience. And you're sharing these experiences and you're saying you're not alone. You're not abnormal. Yeah. Absolutely. Plenty of people go through these these feelings and these thoughts and can make it out the other side. But then there's really no better person to talk to about these things, whether you are somebody that is contemplating suicide or whether you are a family member that has been impacted by it. 
talking to somebody that actually has that experience, that has gone through it themselves, that can relate to these things that you're feeling. And I think that's one of the messages that you uh, that you're wanting to bring forward today, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I uh, uh, there was a time uh, I was uh, there's a, a chaplain at my work. Uh, he's a mechanic, Bobby. Uh, that uh, during those times when I came back to work after those first three weeks, when I came back to work, he was kind of hanging out with me, and I really appreciate that. You know, appreciate that guy. And uh, he's an old he's an older fella. I think he's going to retire here in the next three months or something like that. And uh, so we started hanging out. And then he tells me one time, he says, hey, uh, you want to go out to Yuma and uh, and uh, take some a resiliency, a resilience class out there. They're having a class out there. And initially I was like, nah, man, I'm not interested in that. I got a lot of stuff going on, dude. I, I, I don't really want to do that. But then as I started thinking about it, he said, just just keep it in mind. You know, you never know. I said, okay. So uh, I started thinking about it and I was like, I'd like to go out there and see what they're teaching as far as resilience, you know? And uh, I become really interested in that kind of thing. You know, something that's going to help. Let's find something that's going to help, you know, at all yeah. costs. Because, you know, we as the Border Patrol, all of us, right? We deserve better. We deserve better than a computerized suicide prevention program, right? Yeah. We do. We do, absolutely. And so I wanted to see what, what was out there. And uh, so we, we took a ride out to Yuma, three-hour drive, whatever it is. And uh, uh, we went to this training. And the people that were putting on the training, uh, this uh, under the SHIELD Foundation, right? And uh, this, this lady, uh, Susan Simons, it was, is the founder. And she's been doing this maybe 25, 30 years, something like that. She started out as a, a, a kind of a EAP kind of counselor for DEA, and then she kind of turned it into a foundation. And then, you know, she served, she serves different PD, like uh, Phoenix PD is part of their network and all of that, right? And so she, uh, she was the main instructor for this, this uh, resilient suicide prevention class. And there's about I don't know, 50, 60 guys in this room and three quarters of them are Border Patrol from Yuma. And then there's uh, Yuma PD also there, a few guys. And so the the thing that's uh, different about Under the Shield is that she's the primary instructor. The secondary instructor is a stress coach who is a law enforcement guy. And he was a PD officer out of, uh, out of uh, Phoenix. And he runs through his body cam footage of the shooting that he got into and he shows you you know yeah this is when the guy pops out behind from this suv he shoots my sergeant in the chest he had his body armor on his sergeant goes down he's you know incapacitated from the shot to the chest sure. uh, at that time he recovered but uh, and then the officer took a round in the bicep through and through well he he returns fire and he ends up four shots to the chest on the guy. As the guy's going behind the SUV, he shoots through the glass and and kills the guy. The guy succumbs to his injuries, right? And he walks you through all of that. Now, as he's as he's expressing this, it's pin drop silence in the room, you know? It really makes a difference, you know? And then he says, then he starts talking about the PTSD that he suffered after the fact. 
you know, he says, yeah, I was at work and guys are telling me, hey, good job, killer. Good job. You know, right on. Good shoot, man. And so but he's having panic, panic attacks and he's not able to sleep at night. And but he can't tell the guys at work because yeah. he's a hero. You know. He goes to tell his wife in the car. He's got his two daughters in the car with him, young daughters. And he and uh, she says something to him and then he makes a joke about it. Like we all do in our profession when, you know, we do, you know, yep. that when there's something like that, we tend to joke about it. And that's kind of how we work through some of that, you know, well, the wife wasn't having it and she yells at him, you know, what the hell is wrong with you? You think this is funny? You got your daughters in the car. You think this is funny that you all everything that we're going through. So right there, he says, I couldn't talk to my wife and I can't talk to the guys at work. So now he says, my, my world is about that big, you know? And, uh, so since they are part of under the shield network, he calls the stress coach under the shield stress coach. And they have a facility in uh, Florida where he went for uh, about a month, I believe, and complete immersive therapy, uh, PTSD stuff, uh, they go through supplements, uh, you know, adrenal levels, testosterone levels. How are you sleeping? The whole, a whole person kind of solution, right? And uh, he comes out good on the other side. So then he, be, he goes through the 40 hours stress coach training, and now he's co-teaching classes. Not only that, if someone calls, and not within his area, but say someone on the other side of the, the United States calls the network for help, it's like an EAP phone call. Mm -hmm. I need help. He's one of the guys that answers the phone within the network. The stress coach first level is, you know, kind of peer support. Mm -hmm. Hey, what's going on with you? And the the difference between the under the shield and EAP, and I'm not, I, I, I preface this with saying, I'm not disparaging the EAP by any means. I've used EAP numerous times over the years, you know, marital problems, whatever. I've used them at the drop of the hat. And I tell everybody, if you have a problem, call EAP. It works, right? Uh, if you call EAP, though, caveat, if you call EAP with suicidal thoughts, they are mandated reporters and they call your station and they report. If you're going to hurt yourself or you're going to hurt someone else, they are mandated reporters, right? And that does start a chain reaction where they will take your gun and they'll put you on a small rubber gun. We call it the rubber gun. It's not the rubber gun. It's the maintenance op. It's a maintenance mm -hmm. unit, right? And uh, you call under the shield and uh, all they ask for is an ID number, I believe. It's like San Diego sector would have an ID number. So I have this number. Okay, you're part of Border Patrol San Diego sector. How can we help you? There is no information at the first level that is reportable. No name, no place where you work. So basically it allows that person just to get all of that stuff off of their chest with no repercussions at all. So now, if I hear you right, so your, your concern then is that, uh, you know, calling into somebody that would report what you're saying quite possibly could discourage somebody that needs the help from actually calling. I believe so. And I, I don't want to speak for anybody that's had to make that call or what. I'll tell you, when I had my thought, EAP wasn't even on my radar. 
and I searched, I was like, holy crap, what am I going to do? You know, and uh, EAP, I didn't make the phone call. And I even asked the musters, you know, I think it was a swings muster. Why don't we make any of those phone calls? Tell me, because I would love the input from, you know, our regular, my peers, boots on the ground level. Why, when we're at our lowest point, don't we make the phone call? You know, and I've heard, well, embarrassment or that type of thing. You know, we're, we're, we come with this macho kind of, I can handle it, I can handle it, you know. Uh, but think of, think if, if I can call somebody and they're on the other side of the, the United States probably or wherever, say they're in Phoenix, and I can tell him everything. I don't know, man. You know, I might make that phone call. You know, I, I, I would be more opt to make that phone call. I'm myself. I'm just speaking for myself. I would be more opt to make that phone call in that, in that situation. You know, does definitely, that make sense? Uh, it, it does. Definitely something to think about. Definitely, it's, it definitely bears consideration as we look at how we get better yeah. you know, as, as a family and as a team. Yeah. It's, uh, it, and that, that kind of advice and that kind of uh, critique can only come from somebody that uh, that has lived through the kind of things that you've lived through. And and again, that's, I think, one of the, the benefits of having somebody as courageous as you bringing forth and sharing your experiences. Now, you talked about resiliency here for a second, and, and I want to kind of go back to that because that's a, that's almost a buzzword sometimes. We talk about that, you know, work-life balance and be resilient. But what does that mean? You know, and it, when, I, when, I, when you wrote that down and I was kind of thinking about what I was going to talk about with you, I, uh, it struck me that there's two different types. You know, you got the one that the resiliency is you and me as individuals, as brothers, and then there's the individual, uh, there's the resilience as a family, as a team, as as the Border Patrol. And I, I don't, I think they're connected, but I also think there's different things we can do to achieve whatever that is at both levels. Tell me a little bit about what do you, when you say resilience for, at a personal level, what do you mean by that? Uh, you know, I mean, when, when I was first asked about that, uh, uh, I was asked uh, by... Uh, Chief Huffman, right? He asked me in an email about resilience. And I, I said, well, for me, as I think about it, and all I can think about is that storm moment, what kept me from just losing, <laughs> losing it all, you know? Yeah. And I want to say, number one, for me, and this is just for me, I am not uh, preaching. I'm not saying that anybody else who hears this, this is what you need to do. That is not my intention at all. I am not a preacher. I do not do that. Uh, but for me, the first thing and the most important thing was God and his sovereignty in my life, right? It's his plan. Uh, I kept going back to that. And I know that uh, people in my family have struggled with why, why, why? And I've never struggled with that. I, I, I For whatever reason that, and this is how I kind of, the narrate uh, how I the the narrative on that is believing in God and it's His plan. It softened the edges on that. I'm not questioning Him. It your will be done in my life. Now, please don't take any more of my children. You know, I, I absolutely and I pray that all the time. Uh, but His plan, you know, and it softened the edges on that, and it did. It it kind of. Uh, calmed some of that storm, you know, if that makes any sense. I don't know, but that's kind of what was going on with me. It does. It, it, and 
you know, and I, it, I hear you saying that that's yours and, and, and that that foundation or that base or that 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 harbor in the storm for you has been your faith and yeah, God. Yeah. And that may be for everybody else. But I think the important thing maybe is to find whatever that that base and that harbor is and to have it and to use it. And, absolutely. and I'm steeped in uh, the Al-Anon program for 10 years. And that's, uh, you know, the higher power whatever that is and you go to an Al-Anon meeting and you don't talk about Christian faith it's the higher power and everybody I don't I, I take that back not everybody there's you know I want to say the majority of people in those Al-Anon meetings have some kind of higher power somebody that they look to outside of themselves that they can go to for that uh that serenity, that peace, right? Yeah. So then let's translate that to our green family, you know, the, 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 the border patrol and this, this, this thing that we're a part of. And how do we as a team, as a family, achieve that same type of resiliency? What do we need to do that we're not doing? Or what are we doing right as somebody has gone through these things uh, to achieve that resiliency at a team level? That's a tough one. You know, that's a tough one uh, because uh, you never know what's what's going to work or what's going to happen until something like this happens. You know, I, prior to this, I could it, it would have been hard for me to pin different things down. You know, I know uh, I've I've been to a, 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 a resilience, the resilience program that is rolling out now. Uh, I went to a train the trainer and uh, I listened to some of the things that they they're teaching uh, reframing uh, uh, mindfulness is a big one and that's one of my big ones mindfulness uh, there's uh, spirituality is definitely a part of that gratitude is another part of that you know and this is uh, in San Diego sector this is a mandatory training that everybody's going to have to go through as far as resilience training right uh, um, so I think that that is a good for some people a step in the right direction. I mean, it, it is because they they are able or they can learn skills in there that maybe helps them prior to reaching that lowest point. You know, something that will keep them above water. So for me, it's uh, you know, and, and listening to you talk. I think we've done the first step very well. We've acknowledged that this is an issue we need to address. Yeah. And we may stumble our way through trying to address it sometimes, and but we learn from those mistakes and, and we get better. But all of the things that, that I'm hearing, and, and I even, I, I wanted to, I wrote down, we've got uh, Kent Corso, who's a CBP suicidologist. You know, he, you were on his podcast. And yeah. that's somebody that CBP has brought on specifically to address this issue for its people, for its its workforce. And, and it kind of goes to we're building up that that support network and those outlets to to help address the problem. And, you know, who knows in the end if we're getting everything right or not, but at least we're making that effort. And and it sounds like you were at the very least a, a beneficiary of some of that whenever these things happen to you. Yep. They I, didn't uh, exist when you and I started. No, they did not. And it, it's like night and day. And I'll tell you, I told a story at Terry's funeral that kind of contrasts that. 
my first critical incident happened. I maybe had three years in the patrol, right? And uh, we had a loader go a load go off of a, a road, Lamedia Road, and I got T-boned by another car at about 70 miles an hour, right? Uh, I was second on scene, and there were 12 to 15 people packed in a sedan, in the trunk and in the back seat, and people everywhere. Uh, horrible traumatic injuries at that time, and uh, one in particular, a 12-year-old kid. Uh, he was uh, he was crushed in in the mix in the whole mix, right? And so when he came out, when they got him out of when we got him out of the car, he was unresponsive. And my partner, who was first on the scene, he was a uh, uh, EMT uh, with the military, uh, and uh, I think he was an EMT. I'm not sure. He had medical training. And he jumps on the kid and he starts working on him. He's doing CPR on him, trying to revive him. Well, he worked and worked and worked and worked until EMS showed up and then passed him off to uh, one of the guys, one of the uh, the EMTs. And uh, the guy worked on him for a little bit and then he's like, yeah, he's done. He's done. So we're standing there watching this and he looks at me and he and he actually said, you know, he says, fuck it. And he jumps down on this kid again and he starts going again. And I'm just like, this is kind of surreal for me. You know, this is my first time that I've ever had to deal with any of this type of stuff. Right. So uh, he worked on him for a while. And then he says, hey, I got a heartbeat. I got a heartbeat. And one of the EMTs come over, check him. He says, you are moving dead blood. He is done. And he says, as a matter of fact, get him out of the way. Because we've, we've got more things going on. So he and I carried this kid behind the, the ambulance and covered him up uh, with a sheet. Um, and actually, one of the EMPs tripped over him and said, get him out of the way in kind of a, a rough uh, way. But I won't go into that. But we moved him. And uh, so the next day, I'm riding with uh, one of the old journeymen. We're out working some traffic. And he says, hey, you're going over to... Dr. Marvin's, Dr. Marvin was our guy for a critical incident, you know, uh, the after, after uh, action reports or whatever, you know, the meeting. And I say, yeah, man, I'm scheduled tomorrow, I think. And he says, you know what? Don't tell him anything. Don't tell him anything. Just tell him everything's cool. Get out of there as soon as you can. Get back to work. And I was like, okay. Little did he know that I was having reoccurring, every time I closed my eyes, I saw that kid. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw that kid. And it affected me with my kids because they get into the car and they don't put their seatbelt on, then I'm telling them that they need to put their seatbelt on, overly, you know? And it's triggering that. So I go into Dr. Marvin's office and he says, hey, are you having any thoughts, uh, reoccurring thoughts about this incident? And nope, doing fine, doing good. Okay, well, if you have any, give me a call. You know, thank you, I will. Never called him. And that lasted with me for, I want to say, a couple years, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, definitely those that first year, I was seeing that kid quite often. And uh, and over the years, you know, it all kind of, kind of. Uh, but that's how we, that's how we didn't take care 
yeah, uh, yeah. each other and our people. And so when you Absolutely. when you contrast it like that, I think that does paint a very good picture of how far we've come. It doesn't mean we've come far enough, but right. we are making good progress. We are. And just what the EAP being able to call whenever we, we need to, you know, and all of that, you know, that's a perfect example. EAP's perfect for that. You know, I call, hey, I'm having these thoughts of this kid and this, okay, talk, get it off the chest. You know, I had to carry that. I carried that around for years, you know, yeah. and uh, uh, contrast that, like I said, contrast that today, we've got so many resources that we can utilize, peer support, chaplains, you know, the, the, uh, I think you mentioned it today uh, was uh, um, the uh, veterans, veteran support program, veteran support program, fantastic resources, you know, um, I would like to see, and we are bringing under the shield network into san diego uh as a component for suicidal thoughts you know i think that would be a good thing and i took that to the union and the union is coming into contract with under the shield to become part of that net so that everybody in san diego sector can call if they need it and not only the agents but all of their family members regardless of age so, we so it, it just strikes me that, uh, I mean, and what you bring up is a great point. It's not a one size fits all or one medicine solves all the problems. There's different problem sets out there that, that people deal with from a mental health standpoint. Yeah. And sometimes they require different solutions, different people, different skill sets to help somebody address them in the right way. And I think that's the point you're bringing out. And it's a great point. Uh, you know, the veteran support program, vets talk to vets, you know. A, a program is specifically geared toward dealing with somebody with suicidal thoughts because that is a unique and specific circumstance that a person is going through. These are ways that, that we're growing through identifying the problem sets. Unfortunately, when good men and women like you go through something that you've gone through, if there's anything good to be gained from that, I think is that we all end up, the entire family benefits from that experience and because we get better. Yeah. Well, they, they've offered me... Uh the 40 hour training with under the shield to be a, a stress coach. And uh, I've talked to my command staff and the guys at sector and they're like, Hey, all four, let's do it. You know? And uh, so uh, I'm, I might be teaching, I will be teaching, you know, co-teaching classes and stuff like that, you know? So I think that, uh, like I said, I'm just standing in where I can help. I, I don't care about programs. I don't care about, anything except i never want another agent like my son perhaps and i don't know what was going through his mind at the time when he's at his lowest darkest moment to not have something that he can hold on to you know and that's my mission for the next two years that's my mission man for the next two years is uh before i retire is i'll keep knocking on doors i'll keep talking and i don't know you know, I, I told my my PIC, I said, look, man, I don't make these decisions. You guys do. So I'm going to facilitate the information to you, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I will be back. <laughs> and I told that to the union, too. And I, I, I'm going to all the union meetings and uh, I'm going to see that. Hopefully we'll see this done. Well, Terry, you are uh, you're amazing. You know, uh, we're, we're, we're lucky and blessed to have you in our family. And uh, I hope you know that no matter what, you know, we've got your back and 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 your family uh, i i hate every day that we have men and women in our ranks that have to suffer these types of things and and very few 
have to go through what you and your family went through and you did it and the things that you're doing today so very courageous and i don't know that there's too many people out there that could do what you've done uh could have gone through what you went through and still try and look to make something positive out out of this for everybody else in the board patrol and i thank you on behalf of all of us for that thank and i you. thank you for being here with me today all right thanks for having me appreciate it and ladies and gentlemen to just to close out so let's take this word suicide and let's call it what it is. It's 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 a killer in our midst. It's it's an insidious enemy that we battle every single day. And at the end of the day, those on the front line of that battle are those individuals that it singles out and it just relentlessly attacks. And I think the best thing we can do is to arm them and support them with everything we have. It's a team effort and it takes every single one of us. And the chief of the Border Patrol, Chief Ruiz, he a very heartfelt message he put out not long ago uh, to all of us about suicide and its impact. He said, in the end, people need other people. And I think that's a very simple and, and great way of putting it. We may not have all the answers and, you know, in the end, maybe we don't need to have all the answers. It, it may not be as simple as having that numbered EAP at the ready or, or some profound piece of advice on how to be resilient. Maybe what we really need to do at the end of the day is just to be present for one another whenever we're needed. You matter, each and every one of you, in ways you'll never understand and to more people than you'll ever realize. To quote my guest and, and brother, life is better with you in it. Take care of yourself. Honor first.